Good morning. My name is Jill. I'm standing in for Bethany today. Uh, Our call to worship, if you could all stand, comes from Psalm 136, 1 through 3. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's worship. You are 
good and your mercy endureth forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endureth forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endureth forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endureth forever. People from every nation and tongue, from generation to generation. Oh 
continue to worship and this is the scripture reading for today and it's first corinthians 15 55 through 57 death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ let's continue to worship my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my savior on the cursed tree body bound and drenched in tears they laid him down in Joseph's tomb the entrance sealed by heavy stone Messiah still and all
shall return in robes of white the blazing sun shall pierce the light and I will rise among the saints my gaze transfixed on Jesus Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you, Lord. Let us not lose sight of the fact that some people can't do this. They can't go out in their churches or in their neighborhoods or even their homes and do this, Lord. Let us not take it for granted. Lord, I pray that you bless our time together today. Let us have open minds, hearts, and spirits to hear what you have to tell us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Andy Suarez, and I am happy to see you all here today. <laughs> it's great to have you here today with us. Um, as always, you know on the seats on the row that you're sitting in, there is a connection slip. Feel free to share with us as much information as you feel comfortable sharing with us. Um, there's room on the back for any prayer requests or any praises uh, that you'd like us also to be lifting up as a prayer team. Um, we have a couple events that are going on. Our first one is our, uh, we've partnered with Samaritan's Purse for our Operation Christmas Child. Um, last week, Becky Atkinson had talked a little bit about that. Um, we've been doing it for 16, 18 years now. Um, so you guys may have seen the shoe boxes uh, that are in the foyer area and the atrium area. Um, if you haven't gotten one of those yet and you'd like to help us out with that, with getting a shoe box um, to kids in other countries, uh, that may not get a gift at all other than this all year long. Um, we'd love for you to grab a shoebox, grab a little information sheet that tells you what to put in that box, 
and uh, you can do that with us. Uh, this year, something that was a little bit different is that we are a collection spot for like the whole area, so we need a little bit more volunteers than we've done in the past because we're throughout the whole week, the 14th through the 21st, we're going to be collecting shoeboxes from area churches and other organizations that are doing the same type of thing. Um, I think that Rich said we have like 16 slots that are open right now, so if you'd like to help out, if that's something that you can help out with during that week, um, please take a look. There's a, a sign-up sheet um, right next to the shoeboxes that you can put your name down if that's something that interests you to be able to help out with that. It's such a great cause. I always love the videos that come out of these kids opening these shoeboxes full of just all types of things. Um, and just It's really neat to be able to see that, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that our church is partaking in that. Um, we have another need, our Connections Cafe uh, has three spots open right now, and so the cafe's open uh, right before the first service, and it's open between the first and second services also, and this is a great, like, first serve thing. If you haven't served here before, or maybe if you're just not quite sure, you can let somebody at the cafe know that you'd like to serve. If you want to let Linda know or Mary know, um, just let them know, like, hey, how do I help out back here? It's a pretty easy thing. Um, they can kind of show you what to do, and you can even just try it out and see if it's something that's for you or not. It's great to be able to be that kind of face that's when people are kind of coming through the doors and they come and get a nice warm cup of coffee or a hot cocoa or a biscotti or a, a muffin to be able to say hi to them. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in that, please let somebody back there know, and they'd be happy to tell you how to be able to do that. Um, October has been our Pastor Appreciation Month. And we've done so much better this year than we've done in the past um, because we're normally telling you like at the end of October that, oh, by the way, this was Pastor Appreciation Month. And so we really wanted to um, focus this whole month on our pastors. Uh, we just have such great pastors here at Springbrook. So if you've been attending with us every Sunday, you've seen we highlighted Pastor Rich and Matt and Joseph. And this week we're highlighting Pastor Tim. Um, I think maybe next weekend or the weekend after we'll be doing, we'll be like presenting them with any gifts and cards and things that you guys have have given. Um, there is a basket that's out in the foyer. If you have anything that, if you have a card maybe that you want to write to them, um, if you want to get them a gift or a check or you want to make a donation, you can do that. Maybe you just want to give them a hug or tell them about, um, you know, how God working through them has, has kind of worked in your own life. Um, I know that they would appreciate that. Um, so yeah, this week we're talking about Pastor Tim Beavis. He's our adjunct teaching pastor. Um, Tim and his wife and his family have been coming here now for three years. Um, his wife is Lisa, and they've been married for 21 years. And then they have four kids. Uh, they've got Elizabeth and Emily and Ben and Sophie, and that's 18 years old and 16 years old and 12 years old, and Sophie's going to be eight in just like another couple weeks. Um, we're really blessed uh, because they're in our small group also, and so they're just a great they're just a great family to, to get to know. If you don't know them, go find them. They'd love to be able to talk with you more. Um, Tim is, teaches with us on Sundays, but he's also part of an uh, organization called Carry International. He's the vice president of international operations for them. He's going out all across the world um, to different countries, and he's teaching pastors um, how to pastor, and he's encouraging them and preaching and different things. He just got back from Uganda. He's actually in the Philippines right now. He got there on Thursday, and he's going to be there for three and a half weeks. He's going to be at like three different islands teaching all three weeks and preaching a whole bunch of times. Um, so keep him in your prayers for safe travels and, and a safe return back. Um, let's give Pastor Tim a, a round of applause, so just, even for, just even for all of our pastors. Uh, I really feel very blessed to just... that. We're just so blessed by these pastors and their different teaching styles and just all the different ways that they bless Springbrook. Um, Matt's going to be coming out in just a moment. Uh, 
So, yeah, you guys enjoy the rest of your, the service. morning. <laughs> People are already laughing, so I don't know if this was a good decision or not. Um, are you laughing at my belt buckle? Yes, okay. Um, shoot. Uh, it's been a morning, everybody, um, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but the one detail you all need to know is at 9.01 I got a text that read, probably not the best timing, but, and then it said things, and as I, I was grabbing my phone at 901, because whenever Jess isn't at first service, she calls me and we pray and kind of, it's a good thing that we do as a couple. Um, and so I was grabbing my phone to call her and I read this text and couldn't unread it. And then as I'm reading it, my belt just popped and broke. And that was my morning and I could go back further into detail, but it was a really weird start to the day. But Bill Zaletti graciously brought me this belt um, and these are new pants. And the whole first service, it felt like my pants were falling, but they weren't. Um, but, but so I think this is a better choice. Um, if the glare doesn't keep you all from seeing me, I am not a Boy Scout. I did not go to the 1997 Jamboree, but I felt really loved by Bill Zaletti for bringing me this belt. With that information in your heads, um, let's jump in. Um, so we are in week four of our series through the letter to the Colossians and Philemon. Um, this is the halfway point. By the end of small groups this week, you will be done with half of our series, and I hope you have been enjoying it. I hope you've been challenged and encouraged, um, and I'm excited because this week starts um, this whole big idea we've been looking at in Colossians. We still haven't started talking about how to apply it, and so we've started talking about things we need to think about. And Paul, in his letter, he does this long introduction that spans all of chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2. And then he reintroduces the same ideas in chapter 2, which is what we're going to do today, and starts to give them some, okay, so if th this is true, here are some implications. And by next week, we're going to be in this full picture of what it looks like to live out the ideas we've been seeing. And so I'm going to remind you of some ideas quick, and then we're going to jump in. Um, our first week of this series, we talked about living in a way that proves it is possible to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We looked at a picture of Christian maturity where we think that we could strive to live in such a way that we would be worthy of the Lord, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We talked about we need to be able to answer yes to this because it's what Paul is calling us to. It's what the Bible is calling us to. And then even in that, we need to recognize the paradox of we're sinful, fallen people and the work Christ is trying to do in us and through us. And we need to move closer and closer to that picture of Christ. We talked about bearing fruit and increasing and the idea that 
the, the actions and the words and the thoughts we do are a way in which we show that Christ is king. And then a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Colossians 1, 15 through 20, which is the picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then last week we looked at the picture of Paul as a minister of the gospel and as a follower of this Jesus who is king. And Paul talked about what he strived for in his struggle that others would come to know this truth in the same way that he knows it. And at the end of these first three sermons that we've done, and in, in looking through this passage, our goal is to start thinking about what does it look like to see Jesus as king of every moment of my life? And then how do I do that in a way that is good? How do I do that in a way that shows spiritual maturity? Because it's easy to turn our faith into a faith of rules and regulations. I know many people who think that Christians are more known for what they don't do or what they have to do than what Christ has done. And so our goal this week is to start to put a picture together of what it would look like to live as if Jesus is king in a way that is healthy and holy and how to do it well. As we jump in today, we're going to read a long passage together, and it's what we're looking at this week. It's Colossians 2, 4 through 3, 1. If you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to open there. Um, but before we jump into that, I want to tell you one of the trickiest things about going through a letter like Colossians is that Paul has one idea. The whole letter is built on one big idea. And as we find that big idea, we'll start to understand how everything hyperlinks off of that big idea. For instance, everything we're about to read, you're going to hear all of the imagery of Colossians 1, 15 through 20, the picture of who Christ is in everything we're about to read. And it's intentional because Paul, Paul sets this up and then the rest of the letter, he's trying to make it more and more clear in our lives. And so we have to remember where we're coming from the other thing we have to do, and I hope this analogy works. I think in first service I explained it very poorly. Um, if Imagine you were talking to someone from England, and they started talking about football, and they talked about the kickoff, and then they talked about a fullback, and they said, and a guy kicked it and scored a point. You could be talking about American football, or you could be talking about soccer if you used all that language. I don't know any other soccer language except goalie, so at some point it would fall apart. But if somebody said, okay, there was an opening kickoff and then the quarterback came out, you would immediately know we're talking about football, right? Maybe, are you guys familiar with football? Um, we're, a, we're a very cultured church. Um, but but I, I joke here, but, but once you start thinking about American football, if you heard, all right, they kicked and scored a point, you would immediately say, oh, that was an extra point. Right? You right away would, you wouldn't hear, oh, the fullback had the ball and go, wait, did we switch to talking about soccer? You would immediately 
understand that we're talking about American football. When we read this letter, Paul starts with this picture of who Christ is, and then everything builds on that imagery. And more than that, the one other thing I want to say before we jump into the passage we're going to be reading, Paul uses imagery right before he talks about Jesus, the image of the invisible God, where he says in Colossians 1, he says, um, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's the kingdom we were in before. And transferred us, made us citizens in the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Everything we are about to read and study and consider is imagery tied to kingdom. And when I first read it, you may not see it right away, and we'll talk about why, but everything we're reading is about, do I live in the truth of the kingdom where Jesus reigns, or am I walking back to the kingdom that God has removed me from? If we follow Jesus as our Lord, if we believe that he is the firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God, then as we read this passage, we need to read it thinking, Am I, do, are my feet set in the kingdom where Jesus reigns? And is that where my mind is set? So I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to jump in. Colossians 2, 4 through 3, 1. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elements or elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the full, whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that your gospel is at work here and now. We thank you that we are evidence of that. For those of us who call your son Lord, for those of us who believe that you raised him from the dead, we thank you that we are a part of your kingdom here and now because your good news is at work in the world. And we pray as we dig into this passage that you would open our eyes to who we are without you and to who we are within you. And we pray that we would recognize the incredible work of your son. I pray in the midst of this, Lord, I I confess that it's hard to preach on this passage because it is very easy for me to make my faith a thing of rules and regulations. It's very easy for me to see what I need to do as a thing of, if I do these things, you will love me. But that's not how you operate, and I praise you for that. I pray for all of us that today we would leave with a better picture of who your son is, who is your image in the flesh. We pray we would have a better understanding of who we are in light of that. And we pray that we would begin more and more to set our minds on you, regardless of the situations we are in. We thank you for your goodness. We pray that you would speak through me to all of us. It would not be my words, but yours. We pray your spirit would be moving and that we would come away with a better picture of your kingdom that we are a part of. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So a very important thing. I'm going to skip like half my slides. I didn't feel first service very well. And, and I didn't feel first service. I didn't feel like first service went very well. And so as we jump forward, if you're like, why is he skipping that slide? Just know. I hope it's for a good reason. But we begin. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul has talked about following after Jesus. He's talked about we've been moved from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. He's given us this picture of who Christ is and who we are inside of Christ. And then Paul has said, I am a minister of Christ and I struggle for you, though I'm not with you. I want, I say this, all of these things I'm saying so far and going forward, I say in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So we need to define what plausible arguments are. Um, And I like the word plausible. Somebody after first service said, why didn't you change it to something else? Um, Have you ever heard of like plausible deniability? Like O.J. Simpson, plausible deniability? Like uh, like there are stories where you're like, when I hear this, it it can't be, but there's just enough doubt or or there's just enough that obscures. The, The idea of a plausible argument is something where it's, it's not quite true, maybe, but, but people can argue it, and then you have to say, well, is it true or not? I don't know, and there's, there's something that casts doubt, or there's something that moves you away. The best plausible argument I can think of is in a garden, there was a serpent who said to a woman, did God not say, if you touch that, you will surely die? And it's a plausible argument, because what he said was a twist of truth, And then in the woman's response, you see a twist away, and all of a sudden, the entire thing was shifted away from truth. The idea of delude, to make it less clear, to obscure it. The the picture here are things that we might readily believe if our guard is not up. Paul is not talking here about making insane decisions. Paul is not saying, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments that you should 
like, leave your wife and your children, and you should go do whatever you want. And, yeah, like, he's, he's doing things that would have immediate context to the people he is talking to. Don't fall away from the things that sound pretty good and pretty religious. Follow Christ. He is re- he's absent in the body, but he hopes that they will not do this. He is with them in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He's saying, do not fall to these plausible arguments. He goes on, and this is kind of our central passage for this week that we need to remember. Therefore, don't fall to plausible arguments. Stand in the good work you're doing in Christ. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This picture here is the human application of everything we've read so far. If Christ is, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and if the work he did allowed us to be transferred from the domain of darkness into his kingdom, to make us citizens in his kingdom, then we should walk in him like we're citizens of his kingdom. What does that look like? Rooted, built up, and established in the faith in him. The picture of these is the picture of a building being built that will not sway, that will not fall, or it's the picture of a tree that is so deeply rooted that whatever comes does not shift it, but it stands rooted in Christ. Just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And we're going to revisit thanksgiving later because it's, it's one of the most important things, but if we talk about it this week, I'm not going to get through anything else, but it's coming when we have Thanksgiving week. Unrelated though, but um, it's so important that we note that this picture is our picture of Christian maturity. We've been looking at that, we're going to keep looking at it, but Paul wants them to be rooted and built up in Christ, who they received. He wants them to walk in him. It's the conversation we talked about our first week of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit and doing every good work, doing what we have been called to do in Christ just as we were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The Christian walk is not just, I become a Christian and I'm good. It's learning to bear fruit in this way. As we go on, Paul starts to say, all right, let's, let's give this flesh. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, there's a lot of things we need to define here. The first thing is when we see philosophy and empty deceit. Um, Paul is not talking about if you're a philosophy major or philosophy 101 class. He's not talking about a modern thing. He's talking about in their day, there were people who had different beliefs than them. And in fact, we know pretty clearly that the Gentile church, uh, the uh, Colossians church was primarily Gentiles. And that means they were people who were not Jewish. They didn't have a Jewish upbringing. They were not circumcised. They were not following the Old Testament law. They were also Gentiles from a background where they would have had pagan beliefs, where they would have, because there were no atheists back in that day, really. People had religious agnostic beliefs, or they followed the Roman pantheon, or different pagan temples where they'd worship different things and say different spiritual things. Um, but, but Paul's point here is, don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And he's tying this to the different beliefs that would have flared up in their day. And, and it's, really, it's really important that we step back for a moment. Remember, I talked about in football. As soon as you hear quarterback, you know what sport you're talking about. Um, we need to step back to Colossians 1, 13, and 14. 
and remember that our starting imagery, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. There was a kingdom we were a part of. The domain of darkness refers to being a human because of sin. We are fallen. We are separated from God. We are dead in our trespasses. We are alienated. We are hostile from a perfect and holy God. We are not able to change that. But we who were in the domain of darkness, God has delivered and made us citizens in the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The whole imagery in Colossians is kingdom authority imagery, and the whole question of Colossians is who sits on the throne in your life. We're going to see this play out every week going forward in more and more specific ways, but as we start the passage we're reading today, we have to remember We were in the domain of darkness. We were in a kingdom of the world, a kingdom that had rejected God, where each person sat on their own throne, and we've now been made citizens in the kingdom of his beloved son. So we're called to live as if Jesus is our king. Now, why that matters is because when we jump back into this passage, we need to start seeing that we're going to see a lot of imagery about kingdoms. The first imagery we see, see to it that no one takes you captive. The word captive here carries with it the idea of being taken from one kingdom back to another. Do you you see what's happening here? I hope you do. I think this is really cool. I think this is going to get really fun because what happens here, you were in a kingdom. God took you out and made you a citizen in the new kingdom. And now Paul is saying, don't go back to that old kingdom. Don't go back into captivity. You were dead in your trespasses. You were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds. You're not doing that anymore. Don't go back there. And then when he says, by philosophy and empty deceit, those are tied to according to either human tradition or according to the elemental spirits of the world. Now, human tradition are the things that they would hear from other humans. Elemental spirits of the world would be things that would be in the spiritual realm. And, and so this is the idea of demonic things. This is the idea of pagan rituals. This is the idea of worshiping anything less than God. It's idolatry. It's those ideas. But I want to show you something cool. Okay. According to human tradition, the visible. According to the elemental spirits of the world, invisible. And not according to Christ. Well, if we go to Colossians 1... For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Do you you see? Do you see? He's using this language here based on something he's already talked about to say, you were a part of that kingdom, now because of your king, you are not, so don't go back into it. We're going to use this imagery going forward where red is the domain of darkness and then this bluish color that on the other screens looks like the same color um but shoot i didn't notice that first service but imagine this is a darker blue um so we're going to see the the domain of darkness and then the kingdom where jesus reigns um so when we come back to this passage and not according to christ so don't be taken captive by the visible and invisible that's underneath the reign of christ remember that for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells that's straight out of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, Christ who is the image of the invisible God, who the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in, now dwells in us. We have become like him if we can just live out what he is doing in us and through us. And he is the head of all rule and authority. So you were 
a part of this old kingdom. You're not anymore. Now you're a part of a kingdom that reigns over that other kingdom. So don't go back to that old kingdom. He goes on. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, remember we're talking about a predominantly Gentile audience who would have been Christians, who would have been surrounded by a strong population of Jewish people who said, well, if you're going to follow the God of the Bible, that means you need to get circumcised. That means you need to follow the law in the Bible. That means you need to follow Sabbath. That means you need to follow all of these Jewish regulations. And Paul, who is a minister to the Gentiles, as we saw last week, is saying, no, no, no. Christ didn't die so you could find yourself a new religious set of rules to follow. You don't need to go back to that old way. The the people who are telling you you need to follow all these rules and regulations, they're moving you away from the work that Christ has done. You've been buried with him in baptism. When we baptize someone symbolically, we're showing that they, just like Christ, the death and resurrection when they were raised with him, it's not that we are those things in that moment, but that is a declaration of what Christ has done in us. Paul is trying to say here to his audience, you don't need to follow these rules and regulations. That's a plausible argument because it's, well, we need to follow everything from the Old Testament because that's what the people around us who know more about God are telling us we need to do. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. They're missing Christ in their imagery. They're missing Christ in their definition. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... Paul says, you were these things. You were a part of the domain of darkness. You were, you were alienated. You were hostile in mind. You were separated from God. But God has made you, has made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. There is a promise here that is amazing and in English is minimized. And so we're going to get really Greek nerdy here for a moment. Um, So so the record of debt. Um, If you've ever ever, uh, read like the Chronicles of Narnia, the the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the real first book, um, those are fighting words to some people, but Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, first book he wrote, first book in the series. I'm seeing who needs to repent, but um, no, um, We'll talk later if anyone wants to about that. But um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this young man, child really, by the name of Edmund, who betrays his siblings. And because of that, there's an evil witch who says, you're mine because you've done sinful things. And because of this, and it's this allegory about Jesus. And so there's this lion named Aslan who says, you can't have him. And he's like, but based on the old magic, he's mine. The record of debt makes him mine. And Aslan says, you can have me instead. And so then Aslan dies in his place. It's a metaphor, allegory to who Jesus is. And then Aslan, of course, rises from the dead. And he said, the witch knew about the old magic, but I know about the deeper magic. And Liam Neeson's voice is really good for that one. Um, but, but I say this, I say this, that's the only good Chronicles of Narnia movie. But um, I say this because the record of debt is a real thing. And it's something that because all have fallen, sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, because all of us 
The, the picture in Colossians 1 is all of us were alienated. We were hostile in mind. We were doing evil deeds. In this chapter, it's we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, which means we were not God's people. We were not part of his kingdom. We were in the domain of darkness. The record of debt that we had meant that that's all we could do. We could not change our status. We could not move to the kingdom of God on our own. We could not become citizens there. Um, we were trapped. And when we see this word canceling, when Jesus canceled the record of debt, one of the things that starts to happen is we think, okay, he just erased it. But the problem is, is he didn't just erase it. Erase is a cheap word compared to the underlying principle of what's going on here. Because when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the record of debt was satisfied. He didn't die on the cross for no reason. He, he, didn't just, he kind of just wiped away our sin. His action on the cross did that. It canceled the record of debt by paying it, by fulfilling it completely. And this is important because when we are brought into the kingdom of heaven, we are not brought in as asylum seekers where, where it's like when somebody like does something, like a, like a whistleblower, and then everyone's like, ooh, we got to catch that guy. And then he goes to another country and he's broken some laws, but then the other country's like, we're kind of okay with it. It's not like we get brought into the kingdom of heaven and God's like, I will tolerate you now, but really there's still problems here. The debt has been erased, but the erasing is it has been satisfied. And so the language is, we owed this to the domain of darkness because of our sin. And Jesus satisfied it. It goes on, um, the record of debt that was hostile against us um, with its legal demands. The way God created everything, Jesus, everything was created by him and for him, in him and through him, was a world that should not have had sin. But we sinned, and because of that, there were legal demands of sin. And this whole passage here, is why on our own we could not be back to God minus the work of Christ. And here we see this he set aside, which what's, the ESV translate it, translates it this way, but in other translations it's he's taken it out of the way. It was something blocking us from being able to go into that kingdom, but now Jesus has taken it out of the way, nailed it to the cross. All of this has been satisfied. The gospel message as we think about being, going from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son, it's so important that we recognize that our citizenship is secure. It's not God brought us over and he's going to keep an eye on us. And then in a while he'll be like, all right, you can have a green card. And then in a while he'll be like, okay, you can apply for citizenship. It's all taken place by the work of Christ. And when we recognize that work, when we see that reality of Jesus as king, the resurrected king who God raised from the dead, who died for our sins, who rose again, who's reigning in heaven and who will return someday, when we have that picture, our debt has been satisfied. It's been nailed to the cross. It gets even cooler. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now, remember, we've talked about rulers and authorities. He above all earthly authorities, above all heavenly authorities, uh, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Over, Jesus is over all of that. And we see that he disarmed them. He disarmed them. And the language of disarming them is language of like, if they had their giant kingdom, he walked in the kingdom, he tied all their hands behind it, like hogtied them maybe. I don't know, but he disarmed all of them. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And the Greek word under here, 
Um, this is why, oh man, I wish everyone knew Greek, but then I may not have a job. But um, triumphing over here is language of Paul is trying to say Jesus went into the kingdom where all the people were held prisoner. We were held prisoner there. Jesus went in and he marched prisoners out. The picture of the domain of darkness and being moved out of it is this imagery that we were there and Jesus has come in, he's disarmed the rulers and he said, I'm taking them with me. I'm taking them with me while the rulers and authorities, the things that are against him, are put to shame. They have to sit there and watch him do his work. How did he disarm them? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, what is the ultimate thing that could be done to us in this life? It's our life could be taken from us. And when Jesus rose from the dead, as we sang, O death, where is your sting? Jesus disarmed the greatest power that the world had against him when he rose from the dead. And they are now in open shame. And walking as a Christian, we are triumphing over them with him, in him, through him, because as we follow him, what is happening is we are announcing we are no longer captives. We are no longer of the domain of darkness. We are no longer dead in our trespasses. We are no longer hostile in mind, alienated, doing evil deeds, but we're now able to bear fruit and be a part of the increase of the gospel as it spreads through the world. So don't go back to that old kingdom. Don't go back to that old kingdom. The, the picture of the domain of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved son is one of we should be in this kingdom now. And if we have that right mindset, if we put Jesus on the throne, it should affect every day of our lives. And the passage goes on, and this is where we're headed the next four weeks, including this week. Paul goes on and he says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you. And that pass judgment is language of don't, don't put yourself in a submission where you're submitting to the rulers of the domain of darkness. In questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, the, this top part here, this top part here, these are all Jewish-related things. To this church, he's saying, don't find yourself following after the Jewish people who are giving you plausible arguments of, well, the Bible says this, so you have to do this, because what they are doing is looking at a shadow of the things to come. They are looking at the old covenant, but praise the Lord, the substance belongs to Christ. And what's cool, that word for substance could also mean reality, and some translations say it is reality. They're looking at a promise of what will come when they do the Sabbath, when they do all of these regulations, and now in Christ, we belong to this new reality. And so why on earth would we go back to that old way? Why would we submit ourselves to something that God has taken us from? Paul goes on to say, let no one disqualify you. And the word disqualify literally means rule over. That language, when you apply it across the whole passage, is very clear. Let no one rule over you. Let no one make you submit, you Gentile audience, to things like asceticism and worship of angels. The asceticism, um, okay, this is really important. This is really important. I don't think you should learn all of your theology from Google. But if you ever read a word and go eschatechism um, and aren't sure, Google, okay? I joke about this, but um, in our small groups in our junior high and high school, something I have witnessed many times is we will read a passage that says a word like asceticism. And everyone will stare at me like, what does that mean? And I'll be like, okay, does anyone have any questions? And everyone will go, no because no one wants to admit they don't know what the word means. 
And then finally, we'll get to the point where I'll say, well, we better figure out what it means. How do we do that? And they'll say, well, Matt, tell us. And I'll be like, what about Google? And usually our students who spend every waking moment staring at a screen will go, what? And it's like, come on, guys, Google. But the point here is, is if you ever read a word in the Bible and you have no idea what it means, Google. This was a Google from this morning, from dictionary.com. But it was on the, the first search result of Google. So let no one rule over you. Oh, I should read the definition. Um, sorry, everybody. Um, asceticism is severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious uh, reasons. So, so asceticism. Let no one tell you, well, you have to fast and you have to do all of these extreme things and you have to, you have to do all of these things because if you do all these things, you'll be holy or you'll be a good religious person. You'll be spiritually adept. You'll be all these things. So, so that's one side. And then the other side, worship of angle, angels. Going on in detail about visions puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. The, the picture of worship of angels, a lot of the pagan rituals, they would do these things to like work up into a frenzy and they would have these, like they would say they're having visions and they would talk about the ways in which angels talk to them. And it wasn't, when they say angels, they're probably talking demonic forces, elemental spirits. They're, they're talking about the things of the world and they're talking about those things as if if you do those things, it's a sign that you're spiritual and a sign that you're validated. But the, the point is, don't live in the extreme of not doing anything. Don't let that rule over you. Don't become subject to those things that are things of the domain of darkness. Instead, hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished in it together, and through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The picture here, and this is so simple and important, is... Don't let yourself be ruled by anything but Christ. And going back to our kingdom imagery, this word nourish could mean supplied, sustained, whatever. Um, but in, in the context of a king, in the context of a kingdom, it means the one who is in charge using their resources in a benevolent way to help those under them to grow. There in the Roman Empire, this word would have meant if you lived in a city where there was a particularly wealthy person, they might use their resources to better all of the people in the city and everyone would rejoice that this person nourished the people. And so this imagery tied here is telling us Christ is the one who is giving us that. Why are we looking, at, looking for it somewhere else? Hold fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished in it together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Don't seek the things of the domain of darkness, but follow after Jesus well. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. The picture here is why are you letting yourself be ruled by the things of the earth if with Christ you are no longer subject to it? Why are you allowing yourself to work backwards? Why are you going back into captivity when Christ has freed you from it? It goes on here, and before I read this passage, um, I'm kind of ragging on the ESV today, and it's because this passage is really hard, um, but the ESV is a great translation of the Bible. It's Once you understand different translations, it's not one's good or bad, it's how you use them. The ESV, for some reason, uses this word promoting, but it's not there in the Greek, and it's important because it, it changes the meaning, and I'm just going to get rid of it 
um, because, again, it's not there in the Greek. The, uh, the translators supplied it because they thought it helped, but in other translations, they don't have it, and I think it's much clearer. All of that to say, we have to go back a page. I'm sorry, everybody. I clicked too fast. Um, so if you died with Christ, don't subject yourself to things of this world because they may indeed have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. When someone tells you of all of the things, self-made religion, when they tell you every day I get up and I spend X number of hours in the Word and X number of hours in prayer and I do this and I do that and I do all of these things because by doing that I show that I love Jesus. If they do that, they're talking about self-made religion and it may have the appearance of wisdom, but if the reason they're doing it is to say, by doing all of these things, Jesus loves me. By doing all of these things, I'm justified before God, then they're living in the domain of darkness. If your attitude is, I do these things so I can earn something from God, you are not living as someone who has been made a citizen in the kingdom where his son reigns. Asceticism, if you say, well, I'm going to be a good Christian, so I'm going to erase everything from my life that, that is something that makes me not spend enough time with God. There's good in that. There are things we should get rid of, but if you live a life of just self-denial where, where in the midst of it you think, by doing this, God loves me. By doing this, I'm earning my salvation. By doing this, I'm, I'm becoming more justified. It may have the appearance, but it's really going to lead to indulgence of the flesh. Severity to the body, same idea as asceticism. Um, but the, the idea behind these is that if we think, if you leave today feeling convicted and you say, you know what, I'm going to quit doing 50 things because there are 50 things in my life I shouldn't do anymore. And you just say, I'm going to stop cold turkey. That's, that's self-made religion or asceticism. It's the idea you're going to build your faith with words rather than building your faith around a picture of Jesus. If, if you leave today saying, I need to get rid of a whole bunch of things, you kind of have the same result. And this sounds tricky right now, because what's happening right now, everybody, is we're, we're bumping up against the next week's sermon, and I don't want to steal it, okay? But, but the challenge is, is that we turn our faith into a thing of rules, a thing of earned justification. We turn our faith into a thing of, I, again, like I, I always think about people tell me all the time and I hear all the time that Christians are known by what they're not willing to do or what they don't do. Or people say, well, Christians do this and this and this and I don't want to do that. But the, we turn our religion into a picture and a structure of the things we do or don't do. And that's how we define ourselves rather than being defined in Christ. And the challenge comes in this last verse. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The picture that we are about to go into, we've, like, I feel so weird stopping a sermon here, but I also feel like I would need like two hours to keep going, and you're going to hear it in the next few weeks, so I just, I don't want to spoil all of it, but the picture we're headed to is, Paul starts by saying, your religion is not a religion you're, what you are following, being a follower of Christ, you are a part of a kingdom where Jesus reigns and you are to follow him. You are not joining a whole bunch of rules and regulations. There are things we need to do as followers of Christ. But if we think we do them because that makes us a Christian, we're doing it wrong. If we think we do or we don't do something because by not doing it, we validate our faith, we're doing it wrong. What we should be doing instead is we should be so focused on Jesus. Our mind should be so set 
on the things that are above. By the way, when it says above, it's talking about Jesus. He who is before all things, above all things, all things were made through him and for him and in him. The point of this passage is that it's not about what we're not doing. It's about what we are focused on. It's not about the works of the flesh that we think we need to do to be Christian. It's about, do I, with every moment, look at Christ as king? Do I live like I am a part of that kingdom? Do I do things out of that motivation of who Jesus is and who I am in light of that? Or do I do things because I think I'm going to earn something that God has already given me? Because as soon as I think that my actions, what I do, earns me salvation, earns me justification, earns me a place before God. I have resubjected myself to that domain of darkness that God has pulled me out of through the work of Christ. It's such a tricky thing because when we talk about this, there are all these things that come up. We started off talking about plausible arguments. There are so many things in my life that I know obscure the truth about Christ. One of the things in my life that happens all the time, um, and I'm a pastor, so if you feel judged by this, just know I don't think about this at our church very often, but sometimes, sometimes when I know that I should be doing better about something or I feel convicted about something, instead of thinking, Jesus, you're king, I think, well, I'm doing better than so-and-so. And that's so wrong But what I'm doing is I'm saying, well, now instead of thinking of Jesus on the top, I'm thinking of, all right, all of us are in this battle where we're moving up the ladder or down the ladder, and I'm, you know, I'm a pastor, so I'm pretty high up there. So if I am messing up in something, if I am, then, you know, I can can kind of say, well, I'm good most of the time. So so that's a plausible argument, and it's stupid, because it's me looking at the works of others instead of the work of Christ, or looking at my own works instead of the works of Christ. The legalist offense. We are going to talk about this the next few weeks. This is one of the trickiest things to talk about in the book of Col- or the letter to the Colossians. There is an idea that happens when you confront someone or try and hold someone accountable or when someone tries to hold you accountable where you say, well, you know, it's not rules and regulations. I, you know, you're making it legalist. And, and I don't want to do that. And it's tricky because what happens is that we try and think, well, I don't, I'm following Jesus, so I don't have to follow any rules, but then there's a reality of we have to look at the picture of who Christ is and look more and more like that. So we need to follow him well, and when people challenge us that, hey, I think what you're doing doesn't really match what Jesus is, sometimes we say, well, you know, it's not about rules, it's not about regulations. I hear this, the idea of, oh man, it's, you're being legalistic, and, and we have to find a balance there, but, but the reality is, is that legalism is thinking, I do or don't do something, because of what the outcome could be, right? Like I, the Brett Feiler, I was talking to him before service trying to think of an illustration, and Brett Feiler said, you know what, Matt? You, you're married. If, if you thought, I don't want to cheat on my wife because she'd be mad at me, that's legalism. If you thought, I don't want to cheat on my wife because I love her, that's not. Like, that's simple, right? Like, that's a simple difference. A a, a challenge of this is that as Paul is telling them, don't follow the Jewish traditions of the Old Testament. Don't follow that. Paul is not saying throw out the standard we're supposed to live by in Christ. But Paul is saying, don't do it because you're beholden to it. Do it because you love Christ. So legalism is something that we have to manage because we don't want to turn our faith into, if I do this, I earn this. If I don't do this, I earn this. But we want to do these things because we love Christ who is above all things and before all things. Plausible arguments, it's not my spiritual gift. You may feel like someone is challenging you to do something and then say, well, you know, 
the, the big one is, I don't have the gift of evangelism. Um, I hear that one often, but that doesn't mean the Great Commission does not apply to you. That is an implausible argument. Um, I don't think it's that bad um, is one of my favorite ones um, because this is one that I use and I know other people use, and the more I use it, the more convicted I feel. Oh, and it's I, I. I'm sorry, everybody. I didn't know it's the typo. Uh, I need to not draw more attention to it, but I got confused at what I was reading. Um, I don't think it's that bad. Okay, I have an example. A few years ago, there was a TV show that came out that a ton of people in my life were watching and were all talking about. And I knew that there were things on the show that were displayed that I just did not want to see. And my motivation at the time, and I've used this example before probably, or if I haven't, now I'm using it, but... Um, I told people, I was like, you know, I know some of my students watch that, and I'm not really thrilled they watch it. I'm not going to watch it because if I watch it and then they say, have you seen this, I'm going to have to lie to them. Or if I tell them I've seen it, I'm condoning things that they're seeing and telling them I watched that too. And I had this whole mindset of that, and, and um, I mentioned that in front of a mentor once, more recently, and the look he gave me said, Man, Matt, that's a really bad reason. Why wouldn't your answer just be, I don't think I should watch that because I don't want that in my mind because I love Jesus. And out of that, I started thinking about there are many things in my life that I rationalize as it's compared to the comparative holiness, but it's, well, it's not that bad or it's the one bad thing I do. It's, it, uh, and, and I've been thinking more and more about this and how I will take Jesus off the throne and put myself on the throne thinking, well, it's not so bad. It's not as bad as what other people do. I don't gamble, so it's, it's not that bad. I, I, I can give all of these silly examples, but these plausible arguments are things that we do that obscure Jesus on the throne. The final one, and this is the one that I think is the most ridiculous, um, I can talk about this one ad nause- or at, at length, whatever, um, but I hear people all the time say, it doesn't affect me, especially about things that they, media they consume or different things. And when we say we are not affected by the things that we watch, if we are not affected by them, we would not watch them, okay? You get, if you get on Facebook and you say, well, I just get on to scroll a little bit, and then an hour later you're still on and you're like, yeah, but it doesn't affect me. Every bit of data says social media is bad for you. There's this whole long thing about how teenage girls shouldn't ever be on Instagram because of how terrible it is for everything they think about themselves. And that data, guess what? It doesn't just apply to teenage girls, but the study was very convincing about teenage girls. But there are so many things we do that we pretend like they don't affect us, that they absolutely do affect us. If they didn't affect us, we would not spend any time on them. Okay? That's really important. The plausible argument of I'm more mature than this, this doesn't affect me, is a silly, silly argument. And I say that as someone who occasionally uses it. Oh no, oh no, we're going to go back. I went forward. See, um, so next week and the next week and the next week and the next week, we're going to dig more. This week we've really dismantled things we shouldn't do. But the problem is you can't just get rid of things. It's about what you replace them with. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If we have that right understanding of who Christ is. It's not, I'm getting rid of this thing that's bad. It's, I'm centering back on Christ, who is worth putting for, or putting on the throne in my life. It's recognizing he's there already and living for him. It's tricky. It's not an easy thing, but in everything we do, this is why we're doing the 168 hours in our small groups. We're, we're thinking about 
is Christ at the center of every moment of my life? And the answer is, I want him to be there. And I don't want to do it in a legalistic way. I don't want to do it in a way that says, all right, I'm going to follow all these things and then Christ will love me. I want to do it because I know Christ loves me and I want to love him back. And so I hope you hear this. I hope this sets up well the next four or five weeks. And I hope that out of this, you're encouraged to start thinking, where are the places where I live like I'm in captivity to a kingdom that Jesus took me out of long ago. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you removed us from the domain of darkness. We thank you that you made us citizens in the kingdom where your son reigns. We confess, Lord, that many times we lose sight of that. I confess, Lord, that many times I put myself on the throne in my life and I don't think of you the way that I should. But we thank you that your desire for us, your just heart for us, your, your mission for us, the spirit in us, the gospel at work in us, that you desire that we would bear fruit in truth, that our whole being would be devoted to you in a way that is good. It was the way we were created to be. And so we pray that we would move more and more to that. We pray that following you would not become a thing of rules and regulations for that sake but we would follow you out of joy for the work that you do in us and through us. We thank you that you are so good. We pray that we would keep you seated on the throne in our lives. We pray we would not lose sight of who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us as we sing this last song? Praise to the Lord, who Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is thy help and salvation. All ye who hear, now to His temple draw near.
that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and made us citizens in the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We're not refugees. We're not asylum seekers. We're ambassadors. Go in peace. Reflect Christ.